understand that there's, you know, that you need to educate yourself and to ask those questions and have those conversations and not to put it on the person or the communities of those, of those persons and communities, right? Um, to go and do your own work and education to, to be able to have this inclusive language and to have these conversations. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, we're learning with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. Kim and Trier have come together and written a cracking book called Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. Or in the UK, I think it's just called Just Work, Get It Done. I don't know why the UK has a problem with the word shit, but such is life. It's a journey of discovery, this. I thought that this book was going to be Radical Candor 2.0. But in fact, this book is more than that. I found it quite uncomfortable reading. It put me in a position where I reflected back on times when I should have been an upstander. Times when I, I guess, feel shame for not speaking up when I could have done. And the impact that that might have had on people and the outcome. So we talked today about what some of, that, what some of those circumstances might look like. What, what bias is and how it shows up. And of course, it was somewhat ironic when I went to get the ladies to do their introduction and I said, okay, guys, over to you. And of course, they waved a purple flag at me and pointed out that I'd just used the term guys completely unknowingly. And there's not, other than me, there's not a gentleman in the room. So fascinating how easy it is to express an unconscious bias. Of course, it's also possible to have a deliberate bias or to be a bully. And so we get into some of that. We get some hints and tips from Trier and Kim on how to overcome it, when to stand up, go easy on yourself. This is hard. So I think a difficult book, which you should also read, but a great conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with them today. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I am Kim Scott. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, here in the U.S., and I wrote a couple of books. One is Just Work in the U.S. The subtitle is Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. In the U.K. there, it's Get It Done Fast and Fair, a little more polite. And I also wrote a book called Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. And I'm lucky enough to call myself Trier Bryant's co-founder. She and I started a company together with, that she's the CEO of that will help you put the ideas in the book into practice. 
And I'm Trier Bryant. I am the co-founder CEO of Just Work. And I started my career in the military, seven years active duty as a cybersecurity officer, then transitioned to Wall Street and did a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion talent acquisition for a firm on Wall Street, and then have been in tech for the last several years, um, helping organizations have more equitable workplaces and inclusive environments for all of their employees. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on today. Why did you need to write this book? So Radical Candor is largely about feedback. And if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. (laughs) And and so some of the feedback I got came, for example, I was doing a Radical Candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, somebody I really liked and respected. And when I finished, also one of too few black women in tech, and when I finished the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm really excited to roll this out at at my company. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's a lot harder for me to put radical candor into practice than it is for you. She said as soon as she got, she would offer somebody even the most compassionate criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And when she said that to me, I had three revelations at the same time. The first was that I had not been the kind of, the kind of upstander that I wanted to be. I hadn't been the kind of colleague to her that I imagined that I was because I had failed to notice that she always showed up to every meeting endlessly pleasant. And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be annoyed about. But And it had just never occurred to me the toll that it must take on her to, to have to always be unfailingly pleasant. So that was failure number one. Failure number two was that I had also been in denial about the simple fact that it was much harder for me to put this into practice than it was for the men who I worked with. And so it's hard for the author of Radical Candor to admit she was in denial, but I was. Uh, and, and then third, and probably sort of most difficult of all to come to grips with was the fact that I had so often failed as a leader to create the kind of environment in which everyone on my team could just work and not get not get tripped up by, uh, by, by injustice in the workplace. I had failed to create as a leader just workplaces, just work environments. I was struck listening to the book about, well, it made me realize because I thought it was going to be an extension of radical candor yeah and then I and then my reflection is that it's really if you're going to have radical candor you're going to end up having conversations about things that might be meaningful yeah yeah and and here's and here's some here's some bigger stuff to talk (laughs) about than the weather yeah once we've got to the point we're going to have difficult shit conversations yeah and but some of it is um you know, one of the one of the episodes that you recount, Kim, is you're talking to somebody and you end up realizing you're on opposite sides of the argument about whether women should stay at home or not. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe you could retell that story and we could use that as a jumping off point. Sure. So I'm chit-chatting with this guy before a meeting and he says to me, 
my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I, at this time in my career, I had twins, uh, you know, who were under one. And so this kind of stabbed me in the heart. But I assumed he, I assumed he was expressing some kind of unconscious bias. And so to sort of make a joke of it and give him a chance to back off, I said, oh, I decided to show up at work today because I wanted to neglect my children. And, and I was expecting, you know, him to kind of have your reaction, to laugh and say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't quite mean it like that. But no, that's not what he did. He's, he he kind of jumps in and he says, but, but Kim, you don't understand. It really is bad for your children. You should not be working. And so now all of a sudden I realize this is not unconscious bias. This is quite a conscious prejudice. And so it's hard, it's, it's hard to deal with unconscious bias. It's even harder to, to deal with it when it's an actual prejudice, when somebody actually <laughs> believes what they're saying, when they mean it. Uh, if I define bias as not meaning it, but prejudice is meaning it. And so what I did, what I, and what I recommend folks do it, when they're confronting prejudice, I didn't want to have an argument with him about child rearing. I really was not interested in his views on child rearing. I, I wanted to get my work done. I wanted to get shit done. I did not want to have this conversation. But at the same time, I knew if I said nothing, he had some control over which clients people got assigned to, and he might decide for my own good, he would not assign me to the out-of-town clients or something like that. And so I knew I needed to say something. And luckily, I worked at a company that had a pretty strong code of conduct. And so I said to him, I said, it is an HR violation for you to tell me that I am neglecting my children just by showing up at work today. And, and this had the desired effect. He kind of backed off. Uh, but I didn't want to, I knew I had to work with him and I didn't really want to start an HR investigation. I think it's important not to over-delegate this stuff to HR if you can. And so I said to him, look, I'm not going to make a thing of this with HR, but I think we can agree that it is my decision together with my partner, how we raise our children. And it is your decision together with your partner, how you raise your children. And I'm guessing you don't want to read my studies, which show the opposite of your studies, any more than I want to read yours. So let's just move forward. And we did. I mean, we we wound up having a reasonable working relationship, which we wouldn't have had if I had remained silent. Because it just would have – well, it would have niggled away at you. Would it have yeah. niggled away at him, do you think? He, or he would have just sort of uh, – He would have been oblivious. But he, yeah. what, what would have happened is that he would not have made the most rational – uh, assignments, client assignments. And so it would have prevented me from getting shit done. It would have prevented me from doing my best work. And it would have hurt the whole team because he would have made suboptimal decisions based on his prejudice. And so these are the types of things that we should surface and discuss. Yes, we should. I think it's much better. It's hard. These conversations are difficult to have. I, 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 don't I mean, lots of these are you know, there's a belief about child rearing, but the same belief system is in place around um, religion, around um, politics. Yeah, around, around race. Around, around, a really, <laughs> a really, a really a, a powerful story around dealing, confronting prejudice at work as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've actually found, and it's interesting, would love to hear your thoughts on this being in the UK, is it's a lot easier to have these conversations I've found through gender because 
you know, most men can identify and say, I'm a man, you're a woman, that's different. And we can acknowledge that. As a black woman for me, though, I still have conversations with people that will say, I don't see race, right? We're just all humans. There's one human race and I don't, I don't see you as a black person. And so it's really harder when we're talking about having conversations around identities or intersections that not everyone is comfortable acknowledging or they, they don't want to acknowledge that. So it's hard to sit across from someone and have a conversation about race or how I experience prejudice or bias in the workplace because of race if their answer is, but I don't see color, Trier, you know, everyone is the same. And, and, and that's not, um, that is really just a cop-out, quite frankly, because there are, we all have similarities, a lot of similarities, but we also have differences. And we have to acknowledge that, especially in our organization as leaders, that people live at their intersections every day. And that means that they just have different experiences as they're in your workplace and experiencing your work culture very differently. So give me an example about how you might get to race through gender. Through gender? Yeah, because you just said gender's the, the it, because that's an easy one to talk about. Or right, it's, it's an easier people one. Can't, people can't deny that there's a difference there. Right, or it's just, I think it's, um, there's more comfortability around talking about gender differences or biases than it is with race. Um, and, you know, the, I worked at an organization once where a white woman hiring manager didn't move forward um, with an offer because she, because the black woman who was interviewing wore her natural hair out. And she didn't think that it was professional to have the black woman wearing her natural hair. And um, people, some people would have thought, oh, well, she has an issue with the hair, but it was the black woman's natural hair, right? It was like, oh, her hair isn't like ours. And so I don't think that everyone in the room understood the connectivity to, you know, the race and the implications of that and the, the prejudice that there was because this hiring manager meant that. They really believed that it was unprofessional for you to be in the workplace with, you know, your natural hair out. And when she said, well, her hair is not like ours, what, um, and I wasn't even wearing my natural hair. I was actually wearing extensions so that my hair looked like Kim's. Um, but that's not what my natural hair looks like, right? Like, you can see it right now. Um, I just wish I had hair. <laughs> Um, and so those are, those are, you know, we have to just be honest about understanding our identities and our intersections so that we can have these, these conversations and, and get comfortable being uncomfortable with the dialogue. One of the things reading the book is, oh, it made me feel, it made me feel uncomfortable and uh, incompetent about things that I didn't even know I was incompetent about. You know, it made me think about the times when I had been not a good upstander. Even last week, there were there were probably it made me think about some of the interactions I had with people last week and thought, oh, now I realize that I should have said something or not said something or done something differently. And it just made me so feel so incompetent. Good. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'm no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. 
No, and good. Well, one, let's, let's, for your audience, let's define, you know, in the framework, we define upstander as a bystander who intervenes, right? So a bystander, you, you're observing this, you typically default to silence. And an upstander is you're intervening and you stand up to the injustice that you are observing, whether that is bias, prejudice, bullying, or some other type of injustice. And so what I would say, though, Dominique, is that hang on to that feeling of discomfort because it doesn't feel good, right? Like it doesn't feel good. And so the next time that happens though, I hope that that empowers you or inspires you to be an upstander. Um, but what was it, what was something that happened last week that you felt like you could have been an upstander versus a bystander? Oh, it, it's some blokes all together, you know, somebody telling some probably borderline, well, borderline sort of inappropriate comment about, or a joke about something and you know it's I suppose it doesn't happen very often uh it used to happen more you know you're in London and you're in a taxi cab in London and the taxi driver is just racist makes some you know random racist comment as if that's complete and just almost makes you gasp uh but you know this wasn't that offensive it was just it was just the tone wasn't right and I'm thinking yeah, yeah so and so actually you know what I think they're the they're the ones where it's harder, right? Because it's that th- if like if it's outrageous, it's, it's much easier to say. Intense, right. Excuse me, that's outrageous because it is. But th- when it gets to being just sort of on a simmer, not a fast boil, it's just you know, and you're looking around the room and you're thinking, is it just me, or does everybody else think this conversation's going in the wrong direction? And it's yeah. like, uh, should I say anything? Shouldn't I? They're yeah. the times where. And so I'm just reflecting, reading the book, I was just reflecting back on some conversations that had happened last week and thinking, oh, no, if you're in, you're in. You should be an upstander at that point. Yeah, I think I think it is really important to, to be an upstander, obviously. <laughs> Wrote many chapters in this book on, on the importance. And, and I'm so grateful throughout the course of my career for the people who were upstanders. At the same time, I also have a lot of stories in the book about times when I failed to be an upstander in the way that I, I just told you a story about my failure to be an upstander. It was sort of that that inspired me to write the book was my realization that I had failed to be an upstander. But I think it is, I think we need not to should all over ourselves and other people. I think there are things that we can do. And when we approach it, from a position of, oh, I, I, there, there are good reasons. I understand the reasons, the instincts that I have to remain silent. But I understand, as Trier said, remember how the last time you felt bad when you remained silent in the face of something that you knew wasn't quite right. And what can you do? What can you do to, to intervene next time so that you feel, because that also has, takes a, a cost. When when we as when we fail to be upstanders, it's like we get slimed with someone else's bad behavior. And then it becomes part and, and, and it robs us of agency. And so I was I was talking to my son about some bullying that was happening over Zoom in his classroom and he didn't know what to say or do. So like most kids in, in such a situation, he didn't say or do anything. Uh, and and then he felt it really was it, he was depressed. You know, it, it has a real impact on you when you don't know what to say or do, which is why I try to give people some tools about things they can say 
in the moment, what to, what to say when you don't know what to say? Because it's easy when you look back, isn't it? You know, you, the, those people who can say the right thing in the, in the moment, I'm, you know, I, I'm always in awe of them, you know, and you can work out what you might have said when you think about it later, but then that just makes you feel even worse. Yeah, then you just like, <laughs> three in the morning well, kicking yourself. But at least you're reflecting on it. And I know that there have been times where I've defaulted to silence. I didn't know what to say or do. But later on, I reflected and I was like, the next time that situation occurs, this is how I will respond. And now I'm better prepared. And, you know, the other thing, Dominic, is that we we teach people how to engage with us. We teach people how they can show up around us. And it's interesting that, like, my friends know whether it's a, it's a small simmer or a boil that like I have no capacity or tolerance for any of the bias, the jokes, the even the small commentary, right? And I will call it out. I will call you in. And and they they joke about it, but they also know, right? And, and, and they've also given me feedback though that they're like, Trier, I notice the littlest things now in my language or other people's language because I've learned from you and giving that feedback. And so there is this ripple effect that we can all get better and do better, but it has to start somewhere and we just need more people to be upstanders and intervene. And this, we're not always going to get it right. We don't always get it right, um, but we have to start building that muscle and flexing that muscle more often. I thought one of the things that struck me, Kim, was that one of the things you say in the book is people normally forgive you if you intervene and get it wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, whereas if you don't say anything, then, you know, it's on you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you can also, I, I would just like to encourage us to forgive ourselves also in, in this. Uh, because we're, so one of the things, for example, that I found most helpful, because I, I am so sympathetic with the, I don't know what to say, that feeling of, of Ugh, something terrible just happened in this meeting and nobody really knows what to do about it. So one of the things that was most helpful for me in thinking through this was to to sort of Distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying, and dis- and and have different responses for each one. So if you think, and you don't have to be right, you'll get some more feedback, but at least you've responded. So if you think it's bias, you can respond with an I statement, which sort of invites someone in to understand things from your perspective. So I, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, for example. But I'm not going to give people scripts because you got to use language that sounds like you, not like Kim Scott. Um, but but if it's but just start with the word I and notice what comes out of your mouth next. If you think what is said is prejudice, like in the in the case of the of the guy who said that I was neglecting my children or who implied I was neglecting my children by showing up at work, I started with an I statement and then I learned from his response that it was not unconscious bias, it was prejudice. So if it's prejudice, an it statement is what you want to use. And an it statement can appeal to common sense. It can appeal to an HR policy or it can appeal to the law. So in Trier's story, where the hiring manager is refusing to hire the most qualified candidate because of her hair, you could say, it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. Or you could say, it is an HR violation not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. Or you could say, it's illegal, which it is in the state of California, not to hire someone because of their hair. So that's prejudice. <laughs> now, what about bullying? What about bullying? And if you think what if you think the person 
they don't have any sort of deep-seated prejudiced belief. They're just being mean, right? So that that's the case where you want a you statement. You can't talk to me like that. Or if that feels like it might escalate too much, what's going on for you here? And the idea here, my, my daughter explained this to me. My children, I learned a lot about uh, about how to deal with this stuff from my kids when they were in third grade. So she was getting bullied on the playground. And I was sort of advising her to use a, an I statement with this kid. I was like, why don't you tell this kid, I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. And she kind of banged her fist on the table. And she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I thought, gosh, that's a really good point. And, and so that was sort of where we started thinking about using a you statement. If an I statement invites someone in, a you statement pushes them away a little bit. And Tria, what are some of the things that, like, you've, Kim had an example there of, you know, language that we could use. Have you got any other things that people could pre-can or, or think about their version of, of a response? for situations maybe that they're going to find themselves in? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about a couple of things um, in the framework, depending. The important thing for people to also understand is that a lot of times people will think that these are one and the same experiences, but they're very, very different situations, the difference between biased, prejudice, and bullying. And so because they're very different situations that you may find yourself in. They require different solutions, right? It's not, um, you're not going to respond to bullying the same way that you're going to respond to bias. One of the things that, you know, we talk about are our bias interrupters, which Kim did earlier. So uh-huh. before when we were recording and she has her flag, um, <laughs> we do. Because, because I called you, I said, okay, guys, are we ready? Oh, and she really waved a purple flag at me because I'm flag, yeah. And so what's really great is that, you know, Again, Dominique is like, how do we, we want to cultivate a culture where we all can have changed behavior, but sustain that changed behavior. And so one of the things we talk about with bias is like, how do we interrupt it? So we call it bias interrupters. And so in order to do that, though, is that we encourage teams and organizations to get together and come up with a shared language and shared vocabulary and a shared norm as far as what happens. So, for example, you know, when Kim and and, and, um, her editor when they saw bias or they were going to flag bias in the book, they would say, yo, yo. And then as soon as someone said that, then they knew that there was bias. For Kim and I, you know, we taught a class and what we do on our team and now in our audiences is that we say purple flag, purple because of the color, but it's just like purple flag. So, and Kim and I will we'll just throw purple flags at each other all day, right? But it, it's such a learning moment. And clearly we do when we are in people's other people's spaces. Thank you very much, Dominique, for allowing us to interrupt. I'm going to wave a purple flag. I think Dominic pronounces his name Dominic. Is that right? <laughs> Dominic? I, I, Dom, Dominic, Dominique. You know, okay, it, Dominic. I'm fine, okay. I'm fine with anything, frankly. Okay. Well, I think getting names is very important. I've been called worse. Don't get mine. Um, a lot of people don't get triers. So. Yes. But then after you have a vocabulary, it's the harder part, right? That's the shared norm because then what happens? And so sometimes you can throw a purple flag. Like when Kim threw it, you knew what you said. And then we had a conversation like, well, isn't guys gender neutral? No, it's not, right? <laughs> but, but what happens if a flag is thrown and you don't know? you don't understand or you don't know, right? And and we, we need to still get it done. Um, we still need to get work done. And so then the shared norm is understanding what happened. So maybe it's, hey, thank you for flagging that. 
can we connect after the meeting so I can better understand what it is that you're flagging? I don't quite understand. In the course that Kim and I recently took, it's great because we're still virtual on Zoom. And so the the norm was to actually explain it in the chat and drop like a link to an article or a video that it could explain it so everyone understands what's going on. And so once once you start leading by example and doing this, you know, it becomes very second nature. Um, At first, it could feel a little uncomfortable, but people will get used to it. And you're calling people in and it's a learning moment and and it allows everyone to get better. Yeah, well, we use um, soccer referees things, red flags and (laughs) yellow flags a lot with clients. And we're not normally, up until now, we weren't doing it to spot bias, but we were doing it when people were hogging the conversation or, you know, when somebody was, you know, somebody was looking for an in. And I, I was, I was struck by one of the things like mansplaining. I had heard of that before, obviously. Um, but the the I can't. The, what's the term that you use for where when a woman has said something and then he peating. He peating. Uh, that was new <laughs> to me. He peating. But although the phrase was new to me, I have. I have seen that, and I've seen people raise a yellow card in client meetings where somebody said. They said that, like, they just said that. Why, why are, you know, you're not listening? Yeah, you need a, a purple one. And I think the, the, the really great thing about interrupting these, and remember that these biases can, can deal with a whole wide range of, of issues. Uh, and so, and I think that the more that it is kind of a lighthearted thing because we all we all have biases and and the vast majority of people want to eliminate their biases because they know it's not helpful to have a bias and in fact it makes it harder to get shit done when we have biases we, we make less good decisions uh, so I think that's great I love the the what's the difference between the between the yellow and the red card oh so if you do you a yellow to- you're on a warning and if you get a red you got to shut up. Okay. That's it. And you know, what that is? you know what that is, Dominic, that I really like? So one of the things that I talk about, a, a common form of, of bullying is what I call the bloviating BSer. And <laughs> that's the person in the room who takes more than their fair share of airtime. Oh. And yeah, and, and, and invariably, invariably, the bloviating BSer is not an underrepresented person because it's much harder to get away. I mean, I'm guilty of bloviating BS, honestly, some of the time, <laughs> but in many ways I am overrepresented. And so, so I think really uh, learning how to shut that down, that's creating kind of a conversational consequence for a person who's talking too much in a meeting and and the the bias the bias thing fit absolutely fits in the context we've created because we're saying we want to build psychological safety and you want people to make the biggest contribution they can you know it fits into that team dynamic how do we build trust how does how does thing how do things move fast yeah Um, i love it one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording we were talking about whether it was a where the cultural maybe misunderstanding comes from because i i've i've called the teams who've worked for me boys and girls for ages and yeah. and i couldn't find i couldn't find anything in there and in fact i've spoken to some of the people today who who work for me and they said the girls said i'd rather you call me girls one of them doesn't like the term ladies and the other one doesn't like the term women but you know i hadn't realized and you you were explaining to me before we were recording why that has such a 
Why is that yeah. such a challenging word in the US? Yeah, well, I think the, the key thing is that you're calling the men boys, as long as it goes both ways and nobody minds. I mean, again, this stuff gets measured at the listener's ear. There's not an object. That's why Trier and I sometimes get asked for a list of all the offensive things that one could possibly say. And there's, A, it would be too long, but B, it wouldn't be universally relevant. So I think for me, the reason why girls rankles when someone calls me a girl is that I was raised in the American South. And if someone called a man a boy, that was, that was a, usually a racial insult, uh, a racist insult. So no white man would call another white man a boy, but they did refer to women as girls all the time. And so it, it, it felt especially painful to me to be called, uh, to, to be called a girl. That's why. Yeah, I think for me, I just feel like in the workplace when we're all adults, again, I don't hear men referring to each other as boys, but I do hear men use the term girls and it's like, we are adults here, right? Um, And I think there's just something about keep maintaining and keeping a level of respect equally, equitably across groups that is just, you know, not really seen. And then the other part is I've really worked to just degender my language. So I actually don't use guys, girls, women, men, boys, either way. I, I, I try, I do my best to use inclusive language for those that, you know, whose pronouns are, you know, they, them. So having just kind of degenderizing your language is just a good habit and a best practice to use, I think, in the in the professional setting as well. What are some of the things that you see when you when you're going out to firms and mm-hmm. and doing your training? Are, are some of the things that people are surprised about, or maybe, or some things that people find easiest? So I know um, there's two questions in there. Yeah, I think that. A lot of times people, I think depending on how you identify, depending on your own identities or your proximity, right? Um, I talk a lot about proximity to differences. That's where you're going to. So for example, if you have a team and everyone on your team looks the way that you look and identifies the way that you identify, you may say, well, we don't have a lot of bias and prejudice on our team. We don't need this. Well, okay. But as organizations and there's, you know, there's so much research that has been written and data that just talks about like diverse teams are stronger teams yield better results. So as organizations focus on having more representation on their teams, diversifying their teams, that means that we're going to have proximity to people that are different than us. That means that we're going to see more of the bias, more of the prejudice. There is no one pager for everything, right? Um, Again, it's not universally relevant and it just really depends on who you're working with, global teams in the US, where people grew up, their backgrounds. But what's interesting is even just like at the bare minimum, again, in the US, I find it very fascinating just with like language, how people even the term LGBTQIA plus, right? Now this is this is this is my space. So but I'm it rolls actually off the people, right, I'm actually shocked when people are like, I thought gay was the umbrella term. And it's like actually gay is a person who identifies as a man attracted to someone else who identifies as a man. It's not an umbrella term. You know, queer is the highest uh, you know um umbrella term for the entire community. But there's a difference. And you know, um 
that's always shocking to me that people don't have that knowledge or understanding. But I think it's important just to, you know, understand that there's, you know, that you need to educate yourself and to ask those questions and have those conversations and not to put it on the person or the communities of those, of those persons and communities, right. Um, to go and do your own work and education to, to be able to have this inclusive language and to have these conversations. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, as Trier said, sort of noticing, beginning to notice if your whole team looks like you, then they're, then one of the things that we advise is, is to quantify your bias. Uh, and, and that means if your whole team looks like you, try to understand why that is. So for example, I was working with a team of men and they note that the executive team at this company were all men and they noticed uh, they didn't have to do some complicated, <laughs> some complicated quantification of their bias. They noticed that they never were promoting women to the executive team, to the highest positions. And they, they assumed that this was a problem with their promotion process, not a problem with the women at their company, to their credit. And so they invited me to come and sit in on their promotion meeting. And everybody in the promotion meeting were men. So they thought maybe there's something going on that we're not noticing that Kim will notice. And so they started, there were two candidates up for promotion. One was a man, the other was a woman. Both of these people were really good managers and much loved by their teams. And they referred to the man as a real leader and they referred to the woman as a real mother hen. And I was like, come on, <laughs> who are you going to promote the real leader or the real mother hen? You know, Language, words matter. And they just stay, their eyes got wide. They were like, Oh, come on. And I'm like, you come on, you know, this yeah. is why you're not promoting women. And so I think that that was a relatively simple and yet very unusual intervention that they did. They noticed they hired somebody to come in and, and give them some feedback. Well, well, I was chatting to Frances Fry on the podcast last year and she mm -hmm. said, when she got involved in the recruitment at Harvard, they found most of the professors or most of the people they were uh, pulling in at Harvard were men. And yeah. when she looked at the process, it was because you had to basically go and work for a year to see whether you'd work out. And men yeah. were quite capable of doing that. And because the domestic duties fall, fall mostly on women, they weren't prepared to go and do that. And so the whole system they built was completely biased against women. And, and it just never occurred to them that until, until a woman looked at it, it never occurred to anybody. Yeah, it was it was also, by the way, biased against men who have a spouse who has a, a career of her own. Right. Yeah. So it yeah. Was, uh, because you can't do you can't just go and move your whole someone else for a year on spec. Right? Yeah. You might do that for your own career, but you can't ask your spouse to do that. We um, there there's an executive team at a tech company that we've been working with recently and when I asked, when we asked the question, what's the makeup of the team? And most people will break it down by gender, you know, and race, ethnicity. And then they said, and, you know, of the, of the ex women that we have on the team, none of them have children. And then they gave us the number of men had children. And I was so appreciative that they, that they, to be able to understand that and, and lead with that when we ask the question means that they're conscious of it. And a lot, and we gave them feedback. This is really great because a lot of executive teams are not thinking that from that perspective, but it's really, again, like all of the intersections, all of those different 
traits and characteristics that make us who we are and thinking about how that adds to the dynamics of your team. You know, it really, you can really do a lot with that data, right? When you measure what matters, that data can become very, very powerful to elevate your team. Well, it's, it's interesting because I was speaking to a guy who uh, runs a tech firm in Dublin and he said, it's fantastic that the US tech firms in Dublin have such awful parental leave policies. He said, because it means that women take a career break, have children, go back to the workplace, and their U.S. tech employers will expect them back at their desk five days a week. And he said, we say, you can come and work here for a day or two days or three days or four days, whatever. We don't care. We just love to have you. You're amazing. And he said, he's got this queue of people who he would otherwise never be able to attract to his organization. And then once you've got two or three, then you've got a community and then it becomes easier and easier and easier. And he said, you know, we've this pre-COVID, he said, look, we've reduced our work. We've reduced our head office by half. Uh, You know, it's amazing. The business has never been. uh, But so often there's a bias even there about jobs have to be full time. And so immediately you say, well, there's a whole lot of people who aren't going to apply. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that the, it's funny, I was leading a team in Dublin. And after I had my twins, I had moved a lot of a lot of meetings around to accommodate my need to be with these babies. And, and it turned out I was sort of interrupting dinner time for and this and a man on the team from, from Ireland said, Hey, Kim, we have children, too. And it was it was like such a, it was really good feedback. But it's like important to remember that that men are like like men are parents too. Yes. Well, and and often uh, it's interesting because there's there's even a uh, sort of a head office regional office bias yeah. you can get right. The people in head office are more important than the people in the regional office, irrespective of anything else that might be going on. Yeah, I think that's exactly, that's exactly, that happens all the time. And there's also, by the way, this is another bias to be aware of. And then I want to hand it back over to Trier because I think I interrupted her. But, uh, but there's another bias, which is when we're, when some people are in person and other people are remote, there's a bias to the t- So as we enter hybrid work, we need to be very conscious of that bias against the people on the screen. I actually Love to hear what you think, but I I think that's everybody in the office. We've done that for a while. That worked. Everyone at home, we did that for a while. That worked. What didn't used to work, and I I spent 20 years of my working career really in the UK on conference calls with teams who were all in person in a conference room in the US. And I don't know what you do. I mean, it's impossible to make that great for everybody. Yeah, there's a there's an organization. who they've been a hundred percent remote the whole time. And, but they do have an office. They have, I think they have like two locations where they're just touchdown spaces and people can come in. But what I have actually found that works for organizations that if you do have a hybrid culture, that everything is built around remote work. So even if you're in the office and like, if we were in a meeting and the three of us were in the office, but there were other people remote, we would still be on our laptops in the Zoom, not on the conference thing. You would be sitting in the room, but you would all be in there on your laptops. And there's these little things that they, I just think are so great. So one of the things that I think a lot of organizations, they did not um, catch on quickly enough though, is boundaries get lost when when you're working remotely, right? Because when I show up physically in the office, I'm here, I'm ready to work. And when I leave, right, then I'm, I'm done. 
and and if you need to reach out, but there's these boundaries. And so in remote work, no one really knows, like, when are you starting and ending your day? And so what we've seen in the data shows that people actually have been working more than they were. And now, you know, you're also working during your commute that you weren't working, all these other things. And so what they do is they actually have a Slack channel that's dedicated to like you come in and you say good morning. And that means you're here, you're, you're stepping into your virtual office. And when you're done, you say goodbye. And so there's this one Slack channel where everyone's just saying hello and goodbye. And it's their way of kind of like walking into their virtual office. And I thought that that was just like a fantastic, you know, thing to add norm, to add to your culture. So everyone understands those boundaries um, because it's little nuances like that, that can really take a toll if you're not considering the repercussions of it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think is business not an in-person team sport? Like is business no. not, you don't think so? No, have to be. I think one of the things we've learned in the past year in this forced experiment around remote work is that it works for, it doesn't work for everybody. Like it works though for a lot of different roles better than we thought. And I think it also works for different people's needs. Like Trier and I both, I think, love the remote work. It, at least I love it. Trier, am I right? That I you do. love it. Um, I want to double check. I, I mean, don't want I think to the thing is though is that like I enjoy traveling. Yeah, so, I hate you know, we have a couple of in-person events on the calendar for like later in the year, and Kim is just like, ah, no, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> let's go, you know. Um, but I very much enjoy. But I also, I'm fine with, I'm fine with both. Um, but I, it doesn't bother me. Um, I don't, I don't have this, you know, zoom fatigue or this and that, like, I think I'm just more focused on like, let's be efficient. Let's get things done. Um, but look, Dominic, my last role, I was a chief people officer at a space company, right? We had to work all the way through COVID because one of our customers, several of our customers were the DOD department of defense, the United States air force, space force, so forth and so on. And so, you know, they sent us a letter (laughs) two days after shelter in place became mandatory here in the Bay Area. And they said, you know, you have been deemed um, critical infrastructure in support of national security for the U.S., so you need to get back to work. Now, (laughs) over 80% of my employees, when you're building rockets and then you're launching them from Alaska, which we were doing at the time, 80% of my employees had to physically touch the rocket to do their job. Haven't quite figured out how to build a rocket working from home. Maybe yeah. that I can understand, but there was this, there was this, we, we literally had this, I had, I remember we were in this meeting and my leader of the software engineering team was like, well, we don't need to be in here. And my software engineers are going to be more productive being at home. They've wanted to work from home, let them work from home. And then my engineering leader that was like mechanical engineering, like the hardware, like the actual rocket, they were like, well, if my people have to be in here, then everyone else has to be in here. Not really, right? And so, yes, it's a shift in culture, um, but you get to define that, have those conversations. But I think that, like, I think that what we optimize for is what works best for our employees. And it's not, there's not a one thing that's going to work well for everyone. So, how do you create the flexibility and how do you stay nimble enough that, like, what is best for Dominic? Dominic, you do that. What is best for Kim? Kim, you do that. And you just put some boundaries in place and then let people go and be as efficient as they can within the workplace. And then there are going to be some jobs that are, that are 
designated as in-person jobs and don't take the job if you don't want to show up in person. And then there are going to be some jobs that are going to be designated as remote jobs and don't take that job if you're a person who really needs to be in the office. Yeah. And um, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Um, I think something that I've, I've learned, I know now that I didn't know before is I really didn't know how scared leaders are of DE&I. I think that like, as a black woman professionally growing up, you just get this sense that people don't care or that people don't get it. But in actuality, there's, I did not realize how much fear was behind the, um, the lack of effort. And I thought it was just that people didn't care or understood, but it was just fear. And because it's fear, I take a very different approach in working with leaders now. And are they fearful of being in, feeling incompetent or is, is fear of lots of different things? I think that people are afraid of getting it wrong. People are fearful of shame. People are fearful of actually reading a book like Just Work and having that moment, Dominic, that you had where you were like, wow, I, there's so much that I don't know. And like looking at the mirror and what comes with that. So if I don't look in the mirror and I don't have those conversations and I don't read and I don't utilize those resources, then I don't have to deal with it, right? Out of sight, out of mind. But there's so much fear. And I think that we don't talk enough about, again, we talk about race. I mean, we don't, we talk about gender, but we don't feel comfortable talking about race. I'll give you an example. In tech, most hiring managers, when they say, I'm focused on diversity. I want to hire diverse candidates and I want my team to be diverse. If you push them and you ask them what that means, 70% of the time they'll say women. And we use these blanket terms. We use terms like, like one of the things is we, you know, we empower folks not to use the term women of color, people of color, BIPOC, um, or just diverse hire. What is that? Like say what you mean, because people are so uncomfortable just saying like, I don't have any black engineers on my team. We need to go hire some. I don't have any Asian, you know, marketing professionals on our marketing team. We should go hire some. I don't have any Latinas. I don't have any Hispanic Latinx women on my team. Go hire them. And we hide under these ambiguous surface level terms because we don't feel comfortable with this language. And so we need to get comfortable with the language. We need to say what we mean. And there's a lot of fear here. And so when I, when we work with leaders, I start with that um, because if we don't get, if we, if, if leaders don't get past their own fear, then they're never going to be able, they're not going to be able to make the change that they need in their organizations. I think, I think there's so much, I really agree with what Trier said. I think there's so much, there's a, there's a feeling of shame that we all have when we realize we've said something that is racist or sexist or homophobic or anti I mean, profound sense of shame. I mean, I can tell you what it feels like physically. I get a tingling sensation in the back of my knees, the same feeling I get if I walk too close to the edge of a precipice. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a fight or flight kind of. And then we, we respond badly when we feel shamed. And it doesn't mean that we have been shamed. It, it's when I feel ashamed, I, I get defensive. I do what Jennifer Fried calls DARVO, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. So I deny what I said and I attack the other person and then I pretend like I'm the victim. And like 
just just naming that response to to re, re, like for example I, I tell a story in the book about being at my son's little league game and I'm I'm there was a, a child was injured and uh, and he was uh, uh, sort of originally from from India I was guessing from the way he looked and I was sitting next to a man who also I was guessing from how he looked that he was from India and I said oh how's your son and he kind of looked at me and he said my son and I said wasn't he injured and he was like that was not my son and I just I felt so ashamed because I had just assumed uh you know and of course there was more than one one Indian kid on my son's team and 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 what I wish I had done was to name it to say you know what that was a biased assumption and I'm sorry and and that would have but what I did do which was like which was better than doing nothing. My my temptation was to avoid that man. And that and I knew that was the wrong thing to do. So I said, I bet that kind of thing happens. And he told me a couple of other stories. And I, I said, I'm really sorry. But if I had been even more brave, I would have named it. Okay. So teaching ourselves to recognize that feeling of shame when we realize that we're the person who caused harm with our words or something we did, and to and to respond well instead of giving in to that feeling of shame, which rarely leads us to respond well, I think is huge. I I also uh, it's not to give you an easy out, but I think if anyone's ever tried to meditate, that's really hard. And, yeah. and if you're doing any guided meditation, the person says, okay, so you've probably just had a thought. Okay, don't worry. Just try and clear your mind, right? So it's yeah. it's being conscious that you do it, conscious that you're feeling shame. And don't stop. Just keep trying. Yeah, and be gentle what, with yourself. Yeah. What books should people pick up and read? Well, just work, obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Available from Amazon and all good booksellers. Yes. Trier, what are some of your favorites? Another one of my favorites is Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, uh, which is which and another one is is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which really gets into the how bias works in the brain. Trier, what are some of your favorites? You know, I am not a book person. I am a I, I need to consume smaller content much faster. Um, I'm a podcast person. Uh-huh. I am, you know, like, I love TED Talks, like stuff like that. But ultimately, what I'm going to encourage your audience to do that I have actually found is to actually just go listen to dialogue of people who are different than you. Go listen to a podcast of two Black women have a conversation. It is just fascinating to me of how often or how infrequent people actually hear dialogue or hear people engage of people that are different than them. So go listen. If you're a man, go listen to two women speak on a podcast. Go listen to a woman's TED Talk. Go consume and hear content from people who don't look like you, um, because I have found that it can be very powerful for for those from the overrepresented groups. Okay. I've got one for people, which is Invisible Women by Caroline Perez. Yes. that That's fab. Great My, just great. You know, the fact that more women die than they need to in car accidents because the crash test dummy is a 70 kilo man. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, you know, women tend to be shorter and are therefore closer to the steering wheel. You know, all of that yeah. sort of bias that is just there that you don't even know is there. Dominic, do you know what I recently learned 
sunglasses, the, the bias in sunglasses with the nose frames uh-huh. of how they used a white male, the standard of like a white male nose, but like just like the differences of like um, the nose of like black people, white people, Asian, Hispanic, like they're, they're different. And then they just did this whole thing about like, I don't, I like sunglasses. It's really hard for me to find sunglasses that like fit my nose. And so they were talking about the bias in like sunglasses. There's it's, it is really interesting how much, how many things like that though, I'm sure you're familiar with like the, the average room temperature in like office. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's just so many things like that, but the more, well, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Is it, is it cause it's, it's women are always cold because it's, it was based off of men's temperature and men and women's natural temp- body temperature are different. I, I thought it was cause they were wearing suits and jackets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you 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 can't be the only married couple who like to be in the same temperature in bed. Surely, like the, that's why you know you can you can get duvets that are different thicknesses on both sides, either side. Or you know, we've got my wife's got an electric blanket, and I have the window open. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm I guess I'm I married the right person because we seem to have the same temperature requirement at night. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you very much indeed. I found it. I found the book deeply challenging in a good way. Um, well, so great work. Thank you for reading it and uh, and keep in touch. L- let us know. Let us know how you're putting the ideas into practice. I will do. Tria, thank you very much. Kim, Thanks thank you very much. Us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.